Luke chapter 6, we're going to start, Luke chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 12. In these days, he, and that he there is Jesus, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that you would illumine our minds so we understand your word, so that we see it and love it and rejoice in it, repent before it, that you would turn on the lights so that we would see um, the truth. Father, we ask that you would do that as we look this morning, that we would understand how upside down is the way that your kingdom works and the way you show power and authority from the way that we do. And Father, that we would become a people who are dependent, who recognize that we're dependent upon you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, Jesus has a completely upside-down and counter-cultural view of power and authority from that that we find in our world. Our world finds power always in a show of strength and never in a show of weakness. We find power always in outward beauty and popularity with the masses and never in outward marring and rejection by the masses. Always in complete independence and never in complete dependence. Always in apparent intelligence and never in apparent foolishness. Always in wealth and never in poverty. Always in those who are talented and never in those who are average. And as a result, the picture of a completely dependent and rejected and crucified Jesus looks nothing like power or authority to our world, does it? He looks more like a defeated character of children's stories than he does the resurrected and conquering king. The picture of a church that's made up of a completely dependent, totally average, often rejected people looks more like a band of spiritually and intellectually weak-minded people who gather together to comfort each other as they cower from the advances of science and the liberties that others participate in than it does look like an unstoppable body of spirit-empowered people who have been set apart to make known to all the peoples of the earth that Jesus is Lord. See, the problem is that God's economy looks nothing like the economy of this fallen world. In God's economy, the cross is at the, is at the center of his display of power and glory. Defeat is where victory happens in God's economy. In other words, the whole Bible speaks of a Christ who becomes crucified, a Lord who becomes a, the servant, a son who becomes the enemy, and a Savior who becomes the condemned, so that he can show strength in weakness, his wisdom in what looks like foolishness, and his victory in defeat. 
See, everything is upside down as we see in the cross that when Jesus looks to be defeated, on that day when everything looks most grim, on that day is the day when he's victorious. And the same is true for his church. See, the gospel advances as we carry our cross and suffer with our Lord. And here's what I'm driving at. God's kingdom is completely upside down from this world's kingdom, and it's counter to our world's expectations. Totally counter. That's why the church's sprint toward cultural relevance is often what removes from her the ability to be truly relevant and compelling to the world. See, the irony is that the church is becoming increasingly irrelevant as we run after being a baptized version of whatever the world does. See, does the world show strength through having popular people and beautiful people and talented people and intelligent people and celebrities it looks up to? Yes, it does. Well, then our attitude is that we need those things too. See, I'm not saying, listen to what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that having a talented musician or a talented preacher is wrong. I'm not saying that using technology is wrong or doing things well is wrong. Nor am I saying that having someone who's hip and has a faux hawk and wears skinny jeans is wrong. <laughs> Although the, the skinny jeans might be wrong. <laughs> I'll have th- to rethink that. I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have someone good looking up front, clearly. Right? The, <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I'm also not saying, I'm also not saying that we should all homeschool, listen to classic music, wear overalls, and churn butter. Okay? That's not what I'm suggesting. Look, I know churches that have talented guys who lead musically, yet they know nothing about those talented guys' lives, and they don't really care to. But we want to have good music so that people can really worship. Look, I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive to have good music. What I am saying is you should never equate, equate worship of God with good music or a good musical experience or the lack of worship of God with a poor musical experience. There are people who worship God in places all over the world where they don't have great instruments and they don't have great worship leaders because they're poor And they're still worshiping the Lord. And I know churches that keep ungodly and disqualified men on as pastors because they're talented. And they don't know if the crowds will keep flocking if that man isn't the pastor. See, the problem is that the world thinks power is found in these things, and so does much of the church. But having the Christian version of what the world has is not what makes us relevant and compelling. Hear that? And being countercultural, I want you to hear the other part of this though, being countercultural just for the sake of being nothing like the world is not what makes us relevant or compelling either. Being countercultural in the way Jesus is countercultural is what makes us relevant and compelling. And in the passage we're going to look at today, we see how upside down Jesus' kingdom is as Jesus demonstrates his power and authority in a radically countercultural fashion. And he does it in two ways, and, and here's what they are. I'm going to give them to you now, and then we'll go over them. Here's the first one. First, he demonstrates his power and authority through dependence in prayer. Through dependence in prayer. 
Think about that. Power, authority displayed in dependence. Second, he shows it through the kind of men that he chooses to lead his church. Hear that? Shows his power and authority, the fact that it's dependent and different from the world's, in the kind of men that he chooses to lead the church. So let's look at the first one, verse 12. In these days, <clears throat> that's the days that Luke's writing about. He's talking about the ministry of Jesus and the life of the ministry of Jesus. He, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. All night means from the time the sun went down to the time the sun came up, that may be 10 hours or more. Okay? Jesus continued in prayer to God. Now, it's, it's sort of easy to read this passage as kind of like pass right over the significance of it, isn't it? I, I, I want you to stop and pass on it, I'm not pass over it real quickly. Because here's what we often do. We, we read that and go, okay, so Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, and he prayed there all night, and he prayed there all night so that he could, we read the next passage so he can choose the right disciples. And of course he prayed there all night. That's what Jesus does. And you just kind of read on by. And you don't stop and ask yourself the question, who is this man, Jesus, who considers it necessary to pray all night before making a decision? See, who has Luke shown him to be thus far? This man who thinks, I have to get on my face before God in complete dependence on him and pray all night before I make a decision. Who is he? Who is he? Look back at chapter 2. I want you to start to see, just quickly going through Luke, some of the presentation that we get of who he is. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 2, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. This is the region where Jesus is being born. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Now stop and consider this picture. Luke is talking about the birth of Jesus. And he's saying right now in a manger, shepherds, there is a man being born who is the God-man. He is Christ the Lord. And he's being born right now. Do you understand the gravity of that? Christ the Lord the eternal Son of God, being born. He's being born. And the angels declare when they see this picture at the birth of Jesus, they're saying of this, of the birth of Christ, these are the angels who've seen God for centuries and millennia in all his glory, and they've seen God do all the things that God does. And when they see this baby being born, Jesus, at that moment, they declare, glory to God in the highest. In other words, we have never seen such a magnificent display of God's glory than when he sent his son as a baby to save the world. That's where he says glory to God. That's who we're talking about. If you continue on, Jesus is then brought to the temple and presented before Simeon. Look down at verse 22 of chapter 2. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present them to the Lord. 
As it is written, every law, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, that they offer that because they're poor and they can't bring um, the offering of someone who has money. And verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, now here's Jesus as a young infant, to do according to him the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, now listen to what he says when he sees this baby. Imagine the scene. He picks up a baby, and he's holding a baby in his arms. And he looks at him, and he says this of this baby. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation of the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. In other words, as I'm looking at this baby, I'm seeing what the angels see. I'm seeing the glory of God in the face of this child who is salvation for all peoples. And I'm praising him. Go to Luke chapter 3 and verse 15. We'll continue to see as John the Baptist is out baptizing. Men are coming to him, baptism of repentance, and John the Baptist is preaching. He says this, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, is John this promised Messiah? John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, there's one coming after me. And John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, even though he's in the New Testament, the greatest prophet is saying to you that there's one who's coming after me. This is telling the cross. One who's coming after me. I can't even, I'm not even worthy to tie the guy's sandals. That's who Jesus is. And he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I baptized water for the forgiveness of sins. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Only he can do that. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he's going to clear his threshing floor. And he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And the chaff he will burn an unquenchable fire. That's who Jesus is. That's who he's being presented to be by Luke. And then it goes on in verse 21 of that same chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Here's the Father. You see the whole Trinity happening here. The Holy Spirit's coming upon the Son of God, Jesus, and the Father is speaking. And the Father says, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. He's the Son of God. He's the Anointed One. And then in chapter 4, we continue to see the picture grow in verse 16. Chapter 4, and he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, 
And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, this is Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You read this exalted passage about this coming Messiah who will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, he will right all wrongs. He will make everything the way it was supposed to be. That man, Jesus reads the scroll, and then this is what he says, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Hear that? It's talking about me. That's what Jesus says. And if you go on, we continue to see the picture grow in verse 31 of chapter 4. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons know who he is. That he's the Holy One of God. That he has power and authority, and Jesus says what? But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Jesus has power over the demons. And he goes on in verse 40. Well, actually, you see him healing disease. And then in verse 40, you see this. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out, crying, you are the Son of God. See the picture that's being presented to us of who Jesus is? If you go into Luke 5, it continues to grow. He calls his disciples, and in verse, verse 5 of Luke 5, as he's out in the boat with Peter fishing, because Peter's the expert fisherman, but Jesus goes out to fish with him in the morning, the worst time to fish, incidentally. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets, in verse 6 of chapter 5. And when, he had done, when he had, they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Hear what happens? Peter thought Jesus was a great teacher with great authority and the ability to do miracles. Peter had no idea that Jesus was the Lord in that sense until this. And then he cleanses the leper in verse 12 through 16. And then he heals the paralytic, and we learn something else about him in the healing of the paralytic. When the Pharisees question him, he looks at this man, and he had said to the man, when they dropped the paralytic down through the roof into the house, his friends had come and tore a roof in the hole in the roof and dropped him down. And they dropped him down. Jesus looks at the man who's paralyzed. He says to him, your sins have been forgiven. And the Pharisees are stunned. Who are you to say your sins are forgiven? And Jesus goes on to tell them something about himself when he says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, verse 22, he answered them, why do you question your hearts? 
which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Clearly to say your sins are forgiven you is easier than to say than to rise and walk because saying your sins are forgiven you, no one can verify whether that's true or not. Rise up and walk, people can verify whether or not what you said comes true. But at your word, oh, excuse me, goes on, verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man, and that's speaking of Daniel, Son of Man, the one whom the Ancient of Days gives all rule and power and authority over all nations, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralyzed man, rise up and walk. Do you have a picture that you're given of Jesus? He can forgive sins. And then in, ver in chapter 6, the first few ch verses, we find out that Jesus' disciples go out looking for some grain to eat. They're hungry. It's on the Sabbath. And they're gathering some grain. And the Pharisees come and say, why are your disciples working on the Sabbath? And Jesus deals with their misunderstanding of the law, but then he says this very important thing to them. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Think about that statement. The Father, God created, God created the earth in seven days, six days. On the seventh day, he rested, right? And then he commands in Moses' law in, in Exodus chapter 20, he commands what? You shall, fourth commandment, you've got to keep the Sabbath day holy, right? And now Jesus comes in and says, I'm the Lord of that Sabbath. That's me. See, this man, Jesus, this is the Son of God, the Holy One, the Christ, the Lord, the one upon whom the Spirit, Holy Spirit rests and the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's the Danielic Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins, the one who is Lord of the Sabbath, the one who fulfills Isaiah's prophecy to bring the year of the Lord's favor, the consolation of Israel, and the light of revelation for the Gentiles, the pinnacle of God's glory. That man was dependent in prayer. See, he took the posture of getting on his knees before the Father and trusted the Father's guidance and submitted to the Father's will. And if that man is dependent upon the Father in prayer, how much more are we? See, in the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus says it's his food to do his Father's will. What does that mean? It means he's as dependent upon the Father's guidance and the Father's will and the Father's power as he is on food to survive. See, isn't it the height of arrogance, the height of arrogance that we can find little time for prayer? Yet we're a people, we're a people who hate to admit that we're dependent, aren't we? We hate it. We think it shows weakness. And the fact is that nothing demonstrates strength more in a biblical sense than a show of weakness and dependence upon the Lord. Nothing. Nothing shows strength more in a biblical sense than a show of weakness and dependence upon the Lord. Um, one of the men in our congregation had a brother who died this week. And I read his posts on Facebook, and some of you did as well. And um, I read of his total dependence on God. In fact, somebody said to him, I can't believe you have so much strength. And he said, well, it's the Lord who's given it to me because I don't. 
See, his admission of weakness and his total need for God to hold him up, it is what is really his strength, isn't it? I thought to myself, there's biblical strength. Lord, continue to give him the strength to be dependent on you. Because that's what biblical strength looks like. And the fact is that we're dependent on the Father for every breath. He's numbered the hairs on our head. He's numbered the days of our lives before there was yet one of them. And there is nothing that escapes his notice and nothing that overrides his providential plans. Nothing. We need him every moment of every day and prayer is simply the acknowledgement of that. It's what it is. Prayer is relating with our Father, right? It's thanking him for every good gift, trusting him in every circumstance, confessing to him every sin, looking to him to keep every promise, pleading with him to save every unbelieving friend and asking him for every need. Prayer is not, and I want to make this clear, prayer is not like an intercom where you're sitting in your living room on the couch and you push the intercom and ask the divine butler to bring you things. It's not what it is. Prayer is like a CB radio where you're on the front lines of a war and you pick up the CB and you say, General, we desperately need you to bring more supplies or we will not survive. See, prayer is something you set aside time to participate in for concentrated periods and something that you do throughout the day just as you walk around. And what gives you the privilege of addressing the Father in prayer anyway, right? Because we just sort of assume we have this privilege. Maybe I should ask, who gives you the privilege? Who gives us the privilege of addressing the Father in prayer? The answer is simple, Jesus does. See, here's the story, we're sinners. And as sinners, we're separated from a holy God. We're his enemies. We deserve his wrath for our sin. And we're separated from him and unable to appeal to him as our father because we're not his children. That comes through adoption in Christ, through faith. But Jesus comes along, sent by the Father to be the perfect man that we failed to be. The one who can rightly call him father. The one who throughout his life, incidentally, always in every instance prays to the Father by addressing him as my Father, except one instance. Except one. In one instance, Jesus does not pray to him, my Father. In one instance, he doesn't, and that's when he's on the cross. When he's on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for all of our sins, when he has become the enemy of God for our sake, in that instance, the Son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doesn't say my Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, what's happening in that instance is Jesus crying out what men and women will cry out for eternity in damnation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus crying that out in our place on the cross so that we don't have to cry that out from hell, but instead can come before him on our face and say, because of Jesus, because of the life he lived, because of the death he died, because of his resurrection from the grave, because of him, by looking at him through faith, we can say, my Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
See, we can do that because of Jesus. He cried out the cry of the damned in our place so that if we look to him in faith, we can pray to him, our Father. Prayer is a blood-bought privilege, a privilege we absolutely need to participate in because we're utterly dependent upon the Father for everything. So Jesus shows strength through dependence. He shows power through dependence in prayer, and we ought to do the same. And that's so counter to the world. That's so counter to our flesh, isn't it? Second, second way Jesus is countercultural in this passage. <laughs> even the kind of men Jesus chooses, even the kind of men Jesus chooses show that God exercises power differently in the world because he picks ordinary, weak men to change the world. You guys notice that? He doesn't pick the kind of guys we'd pick. He picks ordinary, weak guys to change the world. Look at verse 13 of chapter 6 of Luke. And when he came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now, here's the thing. He's come down from praying, comes out, calls all these disciples over. There's well over 100 of them, and he chooses some out of them. 12 whom he named apostles. I don't have time to deal with all of that, but here's the point. They're set apart as leaders. They're the apostles. And here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, incidentally, who was also Levi, the tax collector, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We all know who Judas Iscariot is. Notice nobody in churches today calls their child Judas when they're born, right? Nobody names their child that. There are reasons why, because Judas has become synonymous with the idea of traitor. Well, Judas eventually is replaced in Acts um, by Matthias, who becomes the 12th apostle in his place. But he chooses these 12 men, and I want to make three observations about those guys, okay? Three quick observations about the men Jesus chose, and how different that is from our approach. Here's the first observation. It's very simple. Jesus chose them. Now, I want you to stop and ruminate on that for a second. Jesus chose them. In fact, in John 15, 16, he says, you did not choose me to the disciples. I chose you. See, the disciples didn't earn a spot. They didn't ask for a spot. They were chosen by God's grace alone. God's gracious choice of these men was not based upon anything in them. It wasn't even based upon their desire. In fact, we know Judas Iscariot was chosen um, and his desire was not at all for the exaltation of Jesus. It was pure grace to them that they were chosen. As Jesus says when he prays to the Father in John 17, he tells them, Father, that I've kept those, those whom you've given me, speaking of his apostles. Second thing, the kind of man he chose unknown and ordinary men. Hear that? He, did, he didn't just choose them, but he chose unknown and ordinary men. Country boys, Galilean country boys, fishermen, and, and worst of all, tax collectors, people that no one liked, right? See, it's true that he chose these men. He chose these men to do extraordinary things by the power of the Spirit. I, I, if you stop and think about it, we are all sitting here 
because of the, the work of the apostles that Jesus sent out. Because these ordinary men turned the world upside down. It's also true, though, that Jesus could have chosen someone like Aristotle, couldn't he? He could have chosen someone like Caesar Augustus, men who were powerful and well thought of and intelligent and educated. See, he could have chosen wealthy, powerful, popular, and talented people, but instead he chose common, uneducated, and despised people. Now, now, just as a quick aside, because every time someone talks about these men that Jesus chose, they say, notice they're uneducated, thus pastors can be dummies who never go to seminary and don't study. Okay? That is not the point of this passage. Right? These men were uneducated, but they were not unprepared. And those things are different. I would trade three years of ministry with Jesus over all my seminary profs. Okay? They were not unprepared. Here's the point. Jesus chose men that the world would never have chosen, didn't he? If you thought to yourself, I'm going to get together 12 guys who are going to change the world, you wouldn't pick tax collectors, fishermen, and country boys from Galilee. It's not who you'd pick. It's not who you'd pick. You wouldn't go and say, you know, I saw these guys on this weird fishing video where they stick their hands down, and you guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> right, and he's huge, you know, catfish latch on. I wouldn't pick that guy. And I wouldn't pick this guy I saw walking through Oildale with just cut off jeans. And I wouldn't pick that guy. That's who Jesus chose. Shockingly, surprisingly common men to change the world. That's the way God shows power. Do you know that? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Keep your hand there and we'll look there briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 26 through 29, Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, he says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Some were, but not many. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That God chooses us. Why? So that we would know, the world would know it has nothing to do with us. It's the power of God. why I choose the foolish things of the world. 2 Corinthians, if you keep going, in chapter 12, there's a lot of places I could stop in 2 Corinthians, but I don't have time. So I'm just going to stop in chapter 12. Paul's talking about a weakness he had in his life, some thorn that was in his flesh, and this weakness in his life, and he reflects on it, and he says this in verses 9 and 10, because Paul was asking for it to be removed. Take this weakness from me. And he said to me, the Lord says to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect, and I want you to hear this, in weakness. Therefore I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. See, God's strength is made perfect not in spite of weaknesses, but through weakness. You hear that? I think a lot of us think, oh yeah, it's true, God worked powerfully in me even though I have weaknesses and he's going to do that through my strengths. But in spite of my weaknesses. It's not what the text says. Through or in your weaknesses. I remember when I was first um, called into ministry, my friend came up to me and said, you know, you ought to be a pastor. And at the time, I, I had no sense that I had any skills for ministry I, or any gifts. I knew nothing about the Bible, rel- relatively nothing. I had an overwhelm, but, but here's what I did have. I had an overwhelming passion to know the Word of God and to teach it. But I had no clue what all was in it and whether I could actually do it. Um, Jason, our assistant pastor, he feared his insufficiency to do the job. If you were a part of the team that called Jason into ministry, you would know um, that not only is Jason one of the most gifted pastors I've ever met, he is just simply one of the most gifted pastors I've ever met, but Jason was constantly resisting being called into ministry and constantly feeling inadequate. We really basically had, as a group of brothers, had to command him, you will work for the church, (laughs) right? It's it's out of your hands now, dude, right? (laughs) He's laughing because he knows it's true, right, Jay? There's a guy named Milt Cole who's the pastor at River Lakes Community Church who, um, he's one of the pastors, associate pastor on staff there. Milt was the lead pastor there for 20 plus years um, when it was Fruitvale and then became River Lakes. Milt Cole was, as a child and even as an adult man, had a tremendous stuttering problem to the point where he couldn't even complete a sentence when he stood up in front of people. In fact, he told me one time that he'd give it up to give give a speech in college and as he was in speech class giving a speech, he said he was just and couldn't get past the first word. About five minutes later and about three words in, the professor finally had him sit down. And he's humiliated. But he said since a child, he knew he was called to ministry to be a preacher. And God worked in him, and he became a preacher and a pastor. And he's been one for over 40 years, one of the most faithful pastors I know. I would have loved to have been on the elder board sitting there in that room when they were discussing who are we going to choose to be the lead pastor of this church? And they said, let's choose Milk Cole. But Milk can't finish a sentence. We'll trust God's power and his weakness. So you may think you have nothing to offer God's people. You may think you have nothing to offer unbelievers. Perhaps you're older or you're not very educated, or you're not very articulate, you know, you're not very quick on the response. You know, you're one of those people when someone says something and you have a comeback when you're driving home later and you think, I should have said that, (laughs) right? You might be one of those people. That's the grace of God to you, incidentally, because I'm quick on the response and it gets me in a lot of trouble. I'm in the car driving home going, I wish I wouldn't have said that. (laughs) Very, Very different, anyway. You might feel that you don't know very much or, or that you're convinced you have no talents. But God has chosen you precisely because you have to depend on him. Precisely for that reason. God's power is not made perfect in spite of weakness. It's made perfect through weakness, in weakness. Which leads to my third observation and the final observation. Jesus 
Jesus commanded his apostles to depend on him, and he promised he would be there to help them. Hear that? He commanded them to depend on me, and he promised to be there to help them. Where is that in this text? It's not. Right? That's not in this text, but it is in this book, in this gospel. Look to Luke chapter 24, because Jesus d- just chooses his disciples here, but he continues, or his apostles, continues to instruct them. Luke chapter f- 24, in verse 44. Verse 44 of, 20, of chapter 24, then he said to them, that's Jesus speaking again, he's resurrected now, he's died on the cross and been resurrected, and he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. How are we going to do this? And behold, verse 49, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed from on high. And he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. If you go to Acts chapter 1, which you don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen Luke writes this as well. Jesus says to them in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the Father's power that's being given to you from on high. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. See, I'm commanding you to depend on me in doing this and I'm going to empower you to fulfill it. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can do this. But it's not going to be your strength, it's going to be God's strength. See, that's the nature of the upside-down kingdom of God that Jesus saved us into. We're not only dependent on him for choosing us, but for empowering us to carry out his will. See, he always works through those who are dependent on on him. That's not new. Because that's a story in Scripture all through. Look at Moses. God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt, the most powerful country in the world at the time. I want you to go to Egypt. I know you're just out here in the desert. I've come to you in burning bush, and I'm telling you this. I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to tell Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, that I want want him to let my people go. Let you come, take the Jews, and leave to worship me. Now understand the nature of the request. I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him that I would like you to let me take the base of your economic system and leave to go in the wilderness and worship. Of course Pharaoh's not going to like that. And Moses is struck with, but Lord, I don't speak well. But Lord, who am I that I should go? Do you know what God doesn't say to Moses? He doesn't say, Moses, you have these strengths. You're, you're, you're a really articulate guy and you're good looking and people like you and you're naturally popular and you're charismatic and It's not what he says. He doesn't even answer Moses' question straight up. When Moses says, who am I? God doesn't tell Moses who he is. You know what God says? I will be with you. It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It matters who I am. And I'll be with you. Gideon, small tribe. I want you to take on Israel's enemies. But I don't want you to do it with 30,000 men or 6,000. I want you to do it with 300 men. I want you to be outnumbered about 450 to 1. Go take him on. And Gideon, who am I? And you know what the Lord says to him? 
doesn't matter. I will be with you. It matters who I am. And then Jesus gives the great commission in Matthew 28. In verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Lord, who are we to do that? And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll be with you. See, it matters who he is. See, at Sovereign Grace, our elders are aware. We're aware that we are dependent upon God. We're aware. And we joke that we constantly trip into successful ministry. Honestly, we, we never plan successful ministry. In fact, everything we plan fails. But God just continues to let us trip into it by his power. And as a church, we're not big, and we often bite off more than we can chew. And we do this because we want to dream big enough that no one can say it was anything but the work of God. Which is why we started a missions training center to train people to go to urban Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist people groups. To plant churches among them. It's why we hope to start a counseling center in this city. It's why we hope to buy or build a permanent facility that we can have a permanent home and train pastors to plant churches all over Bakersfield and surrounding cities so that Jesus can be known, so that we can saturate this city and others with the gospel. And we can't hope to do any of that on our own. Look, we're, we're not powerful or popular or particularly talented or rich. Not any of those things. And even if some of you are one of those things, none of us have enough of that to change the world. None of us. And none of us can change even one person's heart. None of us. It's all a work of God. So we need to be a people who prayerfully depend on him, knowing that, as Paul said, we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's the treasure of the gospel. Jars of clay, that's us. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that you would help us be a people who are dependent upon you. We know we are, Father, but help us to recognize that. Help us to realize it all the time. To trust in you and have the confidence that you chose us even though we're ordinary to show your power, not ours. We don't have to fear stepping forward and making you known and caring for one another because you're going to be shown to be powerful in us. Father, we pray for the people here who don't know you, who can't pray to you, my Father, because they're still turned from you and aren't looking to Jesus in faith. We pray that you would open their eyes. They would see, would see the truth of the gospel. They would flee to Jesus and know he's their hope. They'd be saved. That we could celebrate with them. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.